and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast about campus politics in the end times. We're your hosts, Laura Martin and David Spataro. Today, we're going to be talking about the fall 2022 faculty strike at Eastern Michigan University with Matt Kirkpatrick. Matt is an associate professor of English, and he held various leadership positions in EMU's faculty union, which is AAUP. During the contract campaign and the strike, Matt was on the union's negotiating team. In the interview, we cover a range of topics, including how faculty pushed back against a proposed increase in their healthcare costs, as well as what it means to be strike ready, even when you think you're not. Before we go to our interview, David, let's do a little news roundup of important higher ed strikes that are either happening now or in the recent past. Let's let's start with the research you've done, David. Yeah, I wanted to do a little bit of background on the adjunct strike at the new school and the recent strike at UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago. And with the adjunct strike at the new school, I think it's pretty important to just go back to it because the UC strike kind of filled the room Um, and the adjuncts at the new school in New York City struck for about 25 days from mid-November into early December, which was pretty amazing. Um, Roughly 1,300 adjunct faculty walked out uh, at the beginning of the strike, and it was um, for a lot of the usual reasons, um, adjunct faculty uh, issues of of wages, issues of job security, but also the admin wanted uh, to cut from their healthcare benefits. And so there was a, there was um, one of the things about the new school, obviously being a progressive institution that has this past of um, being a place where scholars who uh, were fleeing Nazi Germany were welcomed, its origins in um, Columbia professors who were um, dissenters uh, during World War I. So it, there was this contrast between the, the, the institution's past and its values and being union busters. There were also other kind of hilarious Twitter moments during this uh, strike when um, just people highlighted the fact that their president is a James Baldwin scholar, but also a union buster. There was another admin who um, kind of hilariously or frustratingly uh, sent out a message involving a bell hooks quote, mm-hmm. while also being kind of anti-union. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of nuggets uh, beyond just the, the, the work of being on strike. Um, they did sign a tentative agreement uh, that involved raises uh, during five years of the contract. They won some stipends for out of classroom work, which is a huge uh, part of the issues for adjunct faculty who are often only compensated when they're in the classroom. They won some improvements to job security so they, um, they can earn annualized contracts after nine semesters rather than 11. This is a pretty minor win, probably for this for for many faculty. You know, it's important, but just to contextualize it, this means that you know you have to work for still several years at the new school before you can earn an annualized contract. Um, but they protected those healthcare benefits, so a very important strike that happened. Kind of uh, hopefully not getting overlooked by the UC strike, um, and definitely some impressive wins for the adjuncts at the new school. Um, In January, at the beginning of their semester, the faculty at UIC in Chicago, University of Illinois, Chicago, struck for a week. I think it was four days. They, um, again, uh, brought to the fore some 
demands that were outside of kind of traditional bread and butter issues, which is one of the things I wanted to highlight, that notion of bargaining for the common good. And one of their demands involved mental health resources for students. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's important just to, to, to like recall that Chicago is the home of the CTU, the K through 12 union has been kind of the leading edge of this movement and not just the movement of bargaining for the common good, but trying to stop school closures and um, also just uh, kind of the leading edge of the militancy for teachers unions. And so um, I got the impression in doing some of the, my research just that the, you know, the influence of the CTU is there and it was very cool to see them adding in that non-economic demand for students. Um, their demands generally were for 60K for non-tenure track faculty as a, as a starting salary. Um, and they were able to win what looks like uh, just under 5% raises for each year over the course of the four years. So something like 17, 18% by the end of the contract. The non-economic demand for mental health uh, resources for students, it seems a little unclear because it was somewhat resolved outside of the contract. The, the admin um, said they were gonna put four and a half million into mental health resources for students over six years. Uh, I did see some statements from the union saying that wasn't enough, um, but definitely something to keep our eye on as uh, we think through bargaining for the common good. Thank you, David. That's that's really interesting to hear. There's a lot of stuff about healthcare. That's a big part of the interview that we're, um, you're gonna be listening to in just a few minutes as well. So I have two, um, two unions that I was researching, and these are struggles that are ongoing or kind of currently brewing. And the first one is at Temple University. These are both like mid-Atlantic region stuff. Um, so the union at Temple, the, the graduate student workers there are currently on strike as of this recording. So we're recording on February 10th. Um, and their union is called, well, the acronym is TUGSA. I'm guessing they say TUGSA. I don't know. Is that what you, how you would say it, David? I have no Tugsa. idea. <laughs> anyway, that's what I'm going with. So they've been around for a while. They were founded in 1997. Um, and they currently represent about 750 graduate teaching and research assistants at Temple. So they have apparently been negotiating with the administration for over a year, and they've been working without a contract since February 2022. So um, basically feeling that the administration has been, you know, refusing to negotiate in good faith. Uh, they voted in November to authorize a strike for the first time in the union's history. And the vote passed with over 99% in favor. I think the timing is significant considering that it was right around the, the same time that uh, UC grad students went on strike. And I think we're seeing a bit of a ripple effect here, you know, a wave. And um, so part of what I think is really, really, really dramatic about this situation is basically the news that's developed in the last week pretty unprecedented. Um, basically, the uh, administration, this happened a few days ago, 
has um, cut off healthcare and tuition remission to some of the striking graduate workers in retaliation for their participation in a strike. The legality of this is a little confusing to me. It looks like from what I've been able to read, it seems like that is kind of up in the air and being debated. Well, first of all, you know, just just a little bit more about this is from uh, an article from Vice magazine where uh, they ha they have some interviews with participants and they talked about how students didn't even they weren't even informed that their health insurance had been cut off until they went to the pharmacy to pick up their prescriptions. And, you know, they were told your your insurance is no longer active. And they received direct confirmation. You know, I saw some screenshots from from graduate students directly from um, Temple University saying your healthcare has been cut off because of your decision to strike. According and and also uh, in terms of you know tuition remission, I think they've been given like a March first deadline to basically come up with the money for their tuition. And in the case of international students, this could even potentially lead to deportation. So that's pretty unprecedented. You know, it's getting a lot of press. I'm not sure what the effect will be. I think it could potentially radicalize people more. But at the same time, I mean, I mean that's a really, that's a hard, you know, that's a hard place to be in. Uh, I, I don't know how many people will feel that they need to just go back to work. They're also working hard to find scab labor. And I've also seen screenshots of, you know, of their ad, the ad, ads that Temple has been putting out to find replacements. Um, in terms of the admin, so apparently they're arguing, um, I have a quote here, Temple Communications Director Steve Orbanek said that the move to force graduate workers to pay thousands in tuition by next month was consistent with Pennsylvania laws. Um, because striking workers are not entitled to tuition remission, they have been notified of their obligation to make arrangements to pay their tuition consistent with how the university treats other students who have unpaid tuition obligations. Uh, in response, you know, uh, a union representative says that it's a choice that they've made. No other university actually ends up doing that because it's unconscionable to cut someone's health insurance at this time. Um, the Higher Education Labor United Coalition put out a statement that uh, it's an unenforceable and absolutely vile threat. This is cutting off your nose despite your face and are questioning the legality of the move. So as of this recording, it remains to be seen what's going to happen. I think the next couple of weeks will be decisive. I mean, by the time that you know, this comes out, I'm guessing maybe we'll we'll put some updates in the show notes or something, because I'm guessing that there will be some updates. So um, the other group that I looked at is um, the adjunct union at Rutgers. And this is something that's a little bit more um, brewing, hasn't quite come to a head yet. The Rutgers adjunct faculty union they, it looks like they, so they have a very long acronym. It looks like they're associated with AAUP and AFT. I'm not sure how that works. Um, and they basically have a contract campaign that's ongoing. It looks like they're fighting to win equal pay. And I think their big issue is, um, you know, really increasing adjunct pay because it's really, really quite low and, and nowhere near, you know, parity with um, other faculty. 
but also job security. As we know, adjunct labor is incredibly insecure and better healthcare coverage, including for dependents. So uh, as far as I can tell, they are sort of at the stage where they're building a campaign. They're having, you know, um, uh, a rally in a couple of weeks. And we know a little bit from some members of the union that there is a, a push to build for a strike. It doesn't look like there's been a strike authorization vote yet, but it looks like that's something to really keep an eye on in the next few weeks. Yeah, and just like a little tie in between some of these, the admin at the new school made a threat of basically um, taking away the, the health care of those who are on strike. I don't think it was enacted upon, it was acted upon, but um, it does seem like a kind of, you know, basically a way of trying to really, you know, put the pressure on those who are, who are striking, which is obviously not something that people do lightly, but um, yeah, can be obviously very scary um, to lose your health care. So uh, we're going to be monitoring that obviously closely, but, you know, we, we wish all those workers the best and we're in solidarity with them and, and hope for people's well-being. Yes, um, absolutely. Well, it looks like that's it for our news roundup. Should we turn to our interview with Matt? Welcome to Office Hours. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your position at Eastern Michigan University? What's it like working at EMU? What are the workplace issues that got you and others fired up enough to strike? Sure, that's a great question. Um, I'm Matt Kirkpatrick. Uh, I'm an associate professor of English at Eastern Michigan University. I teach um, creative writing. I've been here for about 10 years, um, and I started to get involved in the union seriously maybe two or three years ago, and I had a really, I mean, the reason I wanted to be uh, more active is um, I had a single issue that was really kind of small. It turned out in, in retrospect, it was uh, uh, I really wanted to fix this um, this loophole in, in some of the way that our we have some research releases, the way that's distributed anyway. So I got involved in our bargaining council um, I don't know, a couple years ago, three years ago, maybe. And, it, you know, the, the landscape, I, I think the landscape of, of, you know, higher ed labor has shifted, I think, in those three years. So three years ago, we signed a, um, a contract extension, and then we signed another contract extension after that expired. So we, we hadn't opened our contract fully in a long time. I think it had been maybe 2015. And some of the, you know, obviously I'll do my best to get these dates right. But so, you know, this last year, there was an opening to be, um, to run for secretary on our executive committee. And I thought, okay, what better way to learn the ropes than to become a, a note taker? So I did that. And then we hired a, a new contract um, administrator who really had a, a kind of activist perspective on higher ed unions. He had come from the lecturers union at the University of Michigan, which had won some like just great uh, gains. So we're really excited while we were, we were, I mean, the person we had before was great too, but in our new contract minister, his name's Matt Oaks, brought a lot of um, energy to our organization. So when it came time to do bargaining council again, I just wanted to jump in 
100%. So I chaired our bargaining council. We went through that process. And then when it came time to see who actually wanted to be at the table, I really was like, you know, I think I want to, I want to be, um, I want to be, see this through to the end. And uh, I had no clue. In fact, I, I was a little um, probably uh, naively optimistic that we would not get to a strike because I could imagine a situation in which we wouldn't be able to come to an agreement. Uh, but one of the reasons that, that I wanted to, to be involved was just the notion that we're so lucky to have a union, A, um, and, and the power of collective bargaining is, is in the collective. And I felt like, you know, that, that I wanted to be one of those voices. I don't know if that answers all of that question yet, but it, you know, I, I suppose we can follow up and go down any path that you guys want to go down next. That's great. Yeah, just uh, just uh, one part of the question that I, I wanted to get a little more on. I mean, it's not it's not very common for faculty to get to the point where they go on strike. So I'm just curious, what were the workplace issues that made people angry enough and frustrated enough that they were willing to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think there was there was a lot. So I'll say that that healthcare was was one of those issues and and compensation you know when we poll our members healthcare and compensation were always at the top of the list there's other really important stuff i mean workplace conditions we have complicated workload here um, that, that's been partially resolved so that was less important to people but uh uh, you know, I, I think it really came down to healthcare, and I, I can get in the weeds a little bit about what's happening in in Michigan, in, in particular around healthcare. Is that uh, you know, and I might have some of the details of this wrong, so I'm just, you know, I'm just relating this as best I can. But under Governor Snyder, we had a Republican um, governor, Republican legislature. I'm told that a, uh, a school board um, in a in a particularly conservative county was able to get some legislation passed statewide that made it um, so that public organizations could not legally pay for more than 90% of their employees' healthcare costs, okay? And this was passed, I think, 10 years ago. And, and none of us, you know, the fa- nobody, I don't know, I'd never heard of this, the faculty hadn't heard of this. I think it's called Michigan Public Act 152, maybe. Anyway, um, so when we got to the table, our administration dropped this on our laps and said, we can no longer do this. We have to shift the way that we pay uh, for your health care so that we're only covering um, 80% of your costs and your rates are going up. So when we got this, it represented a huge increase in our health care costs, so much so that to offset um, are the worst case scenarios. So basically our, 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 the, the lowest compensated employees would require a pretty significant raise. So that was a big issue. And, and we eventually accepted those initial increases. However, at one point, the administration actually raised, they kept changing the way they would get into compliance with the state law. So at one point, the increases were were just unfathomably large. If you had a family of more than three, I think, you know, like, I mean, I, I have, I cover two people on mine, myself and my daughter, and ours premiums would double, um, you know, so 
they were pretty significant. So that was one issue. And then the other was compensation. And I think this goes back to, um, you know, and I, 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 I'm, I'm not just talking about our union. I'm talking about just higher ed unions, I think, are, are, are and I think we're in a, a special moment right now. And we're seeing nationally, um, especially for contingent labor, graduate student labor, people really standing up. But we've been taking, you know, these terrible raises <laughs> for years right where they come to the you know they came to the table and they're like well we'll give you a two percent raise and it, as if that's a, a generous amount right and and people we had a couple of people on our negotiating team who come from business and engineering who are used you know make a lot more money on in the private sector we're like what like that's nuts and given that we're in a time of historic inflation um you know, and we, so we felt that it was time for a bigger raise. <laughs> and when the administration came to us, when our, our, you know, our university leadership came and said, we're gonna wreck your healthcare and we're not gonna give you much of a raise, that that uh, fired up the base, the fired up our membership. And I, I think some people, I mean, again, like I was optimistic. I didn't think we'd get there. I think some people just saw this coming and knew that that's where we would end up and that's how we would have to, that's where we were, how we'd have to do it. So it was really around compensation. There were some other issues that were really important though too. I mean, some issues around salary equity, um, some issues around uh, FMLA, how um, if you took FMLA leave, how that would affect your future compensation based on, um, you know, not getting a raise during that year, things like that. Um, some workload issues around office hours, lots of, you know, we had a pretty big list, but again, we hadn't opened our contract in seven years i mean there's just a lot to address um so and and part of it too i mean i think we had um the negotiations started out in a very contentious way and i don't think that they had to our um university hired a a, a lawyer who sort of known as a, a higher ed union busting lawyer and early on we had this like in retrospect i mean at the time too but very petty fight over modality about basically we wanted to be able to be via Zoom um, to do our negotiations and they refused. And, you know, we ended up in a hybrid, you know, in a room where we had like a, what these high flex rooms, but you know, we, it took so long to get there. It was clearly a delay tactic from our administrators to, to run down the clock, which I think ended up backfiring for them. But um, you know, even from the, so when we finally did meet in late July, middle of July, we would present what we thought was like a harmless thing we passed across the table. Remember that loophole that I was talking about closing this really minor thing. And they would pass back, you know, that, that uh, clause in the contract full of cuts is basically like this, like, you know, Oh, you want that? How about this? You know? So I feel like we just got off on a, a really contentious foot and that continued throughout. And, you know, to the point when, um, you know, their lawyer, he didn't literally flip the table, but, you know, he might as well flip the table and walk, stormed out and said, let's go to mediation. And we knew it was going to be going to be rough. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that hits at some of our later questions about the negotiating process. Um, but mm -hmm. before we get there, um, you had mentioned you felt a little more naive than some of the others. And I felt like this was a good moment to hear about the the state of union membership uh, prior to the strike? Like, were people well organized and proactive? Is there a rank and file here that was already kind of, uh, you know, organized or 
what was the status beforehand? I think, and you know, I, that's a great question. I think that we were not ready to do what we did until we needed to do it. And that we were, um, I want to say we were fortunate to have the people in place to execute on it. And part of that was that the person we had, our, our new organizer, our new full-time organizer, really knows his stuff. And he's, he's a classic organizer, right? Versus, you know, like part of that job is also to be the, the steward of the contract, right? So like there's different components to that job, but he came from an organizing background where you need to get people fired up. And he's really good at that. He was really good at executing on that. We had a lot of, um, uh, we had a lot of support from the national um, AAUP and also because of our recent merger with the AFT we had people come from the AFT to help, especially with just organizing people on the, on the ground during the actual strike. I think our membership, you know, because this is the only union I've belonged to, I can't really compare it to anything. I think it's really a mix. I think that there are some people who are probably ambivalent and, you know, our jobs, maybe ideally we should be able to just do our thing, right? And not worry about this stuff. So I don't, this isn't a, uh, a judgment on anybody, um, you know, who know that the union is there if they have a problem and they need them, right? Which, and there's a comfort in that. And I was certainly that kind of union member for my first few years here too. Um, and uh, glad it was there. I didn't really know when negotiations were happening, when I, you know, that kind of stuff was the back of my So I think there's a pretty good percentage of our members who are like that. But then as things started to heat up, I think people got excited I mean, it's fun to pick it with your, your friends, you know, <laughs> I met so many people, but we did a bunch of things before um, our strike, we had, we picketed a football game, we picketed move-in day, we did these informational pickets, um, Southeast Michigan, because of its proximity to Detroit, I think the news here loves a labor dispute, so we had some interest um, the University of Michigan, uh, Michigan Medicine's nurses were also, um, I mean, much bigger organization, but they had, um, you know, they were also doing informational pickets. Uh, we had a lot of support, you know, the, our students were, were so great. Our students are so, um, I just, you know, I mean, I teach creative writing, so I mean, obviously I feel like my students are often, um, politically aligned with um, with our ideals, you know, really were, were interested. So we got a sense that the, the community was interested. We met with, um, you know, with, with local and, and, and state representatives uh, beforehand. You know, we were really trying to do everything we could to, to signal that we meant business, you know, and I think the closer we got to it, the more that really picked up um, and the more, um, the more our members uh, I think activated, you know, and, and I just, I remember, um, you know, as we got closer, it was like, oh, this is scary. Like it's, it, you know, for all the picketing and all the camaraderie that we had on the picket line, as we got closer, we we're like, oh, this is, this is pretty intense. I mean, this is something we're going to do that's, that's, um, I'd say technically illegal, <laughs> um, that, uh, it could have real consequences for people's jobs. And I think our, our members understood that. We had a, a you know pretty amazing turnout for the uh, testing the limits of Zoom um, when we started to talk about this stuff. So I could tell the members were concerned, et cetera. And it was a lot, I think, to to have on our, our shoulders as we as we moved forward. But um, 
Yeah. So it, does that make sense? I mean, I guess that, that that's like, I don't think we were ready for it, but then we were ready for it. And I, I was amazed at how it was pulled off. And part of that was just people, people did what they had to do, you know? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. That's cool. Um, you kind of have already started to answer this, but could you kind of just give us a brief recap of the strike? Kind of just the the timeline and the key moments was there you know any any you know how did it how did it end obviously and but was there any kind of highlights along the way that you want to bring up yeah sure um it, it seems in i don't know uh probably the people who are listening to this are excited by this stuff and it was very exciting um we were you know i think uh i, I forget what so one of the things we did and i i think we had um uh fantastic legal counsel um, uh, shout out to Joe Michaels um, in Ann Arbor. Uh, and one of the things that, that we decided to do was that when our contract expired, we agreed to work without a contract for a little bit. And we did that for, I think, six days. And we decided, I think it was the day before the last day of ad drop <laughs> that we were gonna strike. And what was happening behind the scenes and we can maybe we can talk about this a little bit later too is that we just weren't getting a counter you know we would we had asked for i mean the way negotiations are supposed to work is you know we show up with a big number and then the administration has a small number and we meet somewhere in the middle right and they just weren't getting us anywhere close to the middle and they kept saying we're we're not even we're not even close to where you want to be and our, um, you know, our answer was always, but, you know, it's not this number. Like we knew that we would, you know, and eventually we got somewhere in the middle, right? But um, so when we, when we voted to authorize the strike, um, I don't know, it was probably a Tuesday, so I remember I only missed one class. Uh, we were very quick to mobilize. We had, uh, we had you know, food, national, the, the state AFT uh, was there. We were picketing basically in front of our um, uh, administrative building, which is on a busy street. So we had the, the power of the car horn working for us uh, and the power of the media uh, uh, working for us. And, and very quickly, so Michigan is a, a, a right to work state for now, actually, because of Michigan's uh, tremendous uh, shift in the last election, we may be able to, I don't know, hopefully, hopefully maybe we'll be able to get rid of right to work. I don't know, it's like a pie in the sky thing, but you know, we're a blue state now, again, um, maybe momentarily. But so we we knew that what we were gonna do is illegal um, and the, the strike could be ended by a, a court order. And what happened is that the administration very quickly sued the members of the executive committee, which is myself and, and seven others, I think, um, named in the lawsuit and asked the court to grant a, um, uh, I think it's called a temporary restraining order, which would send us back to work uh, immediately. So the Friday morning, I think the judge that was assigned to our case was, was out of town so he bought us a day or two. And then the judge refused to grant the temporary restraining order on Friday morning. And I remember um, being in the negotiating room and our mediator was there and she stepped out of the room. And I remember saying to our lawyer, I said, I think that this is good, right? And he's like, yeah. 
uh, you guys and uh, have a week essentially to strike. So she she set our court date for I think a week after that. So basically gave us a lot of space to continue to strike before we were going to be ordered back to work. And I think that that moment, you know, I remember the night before that happened, all the days blur together, but the night before that happened, we, we felt a real sense of doom. We're like, it's over. They're going to send us back to work in the morning and our, our power evaporates and we have to take what they're going to give us essentially. But it didn't. The court um, said, you have a week to strike. And then we knew that it was going to be over. So then that weekend, I think we had pickers, picketers out on a Saturday. Um, I, uh, our, our current president of the union, um, the president of Michigan AFT, met with our provost who thus far had not been part of the negotiation and started to really be able to move things forward. And I think she understood that we, we needed the strike to be over. That everybody, it was in everybody's best, best interest to figure this out by Monday. And I think that that's what we did. I think Sunday night, uh, we we signed the tentative agreement that we we were confident that our members would um, accept, uh, and part of that was that we came to some agreement about healthcare. We took a big hit. Still, um, we got some you know at least some affordable options uh, in terms of healthcare. Uh, we got a, a significant raise. I mean, an anybody outside of uh, higher ed says a four percent raise is not that great, but to us it was huge. And the 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 terms of that were that you the it was 4% or $4,000, whichever was higher. So that actually, for a lot of our, you know, anybody in the humanities, <laughs> it's a big, a big raise, um, myself included. Uh, I don't know if you guys follow the associate dean's Twitter account, but it talked about all the humanities professors coming back to campus in their 12-year-old Subarus. I was like, Mine's a Prius, but it's 12 years old, you know, so I mean, that meant a lot to us um, and, and able to get some other things. So, I mean, it was really the, the, uh, the court giving us that time that I think gave us the power to continue. And obviously all the people out on the picket lines, all the students who were supporting us, all of the um, uh, people from the community who were honking their horns constantly, all of that stuff. So I don't think it was just the court, but that was a huge, huge part of it for us, for sure. So I'm just trying to understand because I, I'm realizing I don't know a lot about how these things work in a right to work state. And because when I was sort of reading up on the case, I was, you know, I was a little bit wondering, okay, well, why did they stop striking after a week? When, you know, maybe if they had struck longer, they might have got gotten more, obviously, it's easy from the outside to, <laughs> to ask those questions. But you know, and, and particularly um, it something that I read talked about, you know, the the um, bargaining team calling off the strike before the rank and file had gotten to read the agreement. Yeah, that happened here with the Seattle teachers. And that's definitely like a red flag for me of like, uh oh, because that's, you know, that's where the leverage comes from is from the strike being active. So I had some questions around that around just like the Democratic or undemocratic nature of that but now this right to work thing and the the court order i'm trying to understand how that fits in as well so how did you know that you only had a week the the judge said that or you just you knew the judge would revisit it in a week and what would happen if you kept striking i'm, I'm just as someone who's ignorant i'm trying to understand oh this is all new to me so yeah. or was new to me too and it's mm -hmm. complicated 
And, and I'll say that, that my understanding of this stuff was a lot sharper when it was happening. But uh, in terms of the, the legality of the strike, essentially what happened is as soon as the administration asked for a temporary restraining order, what happens is the judge looks at that, I guess, and, and I don't know the legal terminology here, but looks at it right away. And, uh, you know, one scenario could have been that the judge would have ordered us back right away to work right away. Okay. And, and in that scenario, if we didn't go back to work, they could start putting people in jail. They could start, they could fire people essentially. However, what she did, and obviously nobody really wants that. Like the administration doesn't want that either. So, but what happened is by the judge refusing to grant the temporary restraining order, what then happened, the next step is that she said, okay, but, but I'm going to hear your case. So it basically bought us a little bit of time. So that week was the time period between her denying the temporary restraining order and then agreeing to hear the case. But what was going to happen when she heard the case the following week is that she would likely, even though we live in, you know, we have very, very um, progressive judges, um, probably the letter of the law would be that she would send us back to work. Because in, in Michigan, so part of right to work has, um, uh, part of the way that works is that public, we can have a union and we have collective bargaining, but we're not technically uh, allowed to strike. However, the law makes it possible to strike in the sense that it's very difficult to target individuals um, the university would probably not want to fire its entire faculty um, given a strike. So we had some of that power, but then when it gets trickier is when I think when the court order kicks in is when the court says, you got to go back, you know, and, and I don't know specifically if this happened. There were some people without tenure who probably, I'm just guessing, didn't strike. There were probably some people who were were afraid of particular repercussions, maybe who taught their classes, I don't know. Um, the other thing that right to work does, which is which is tricky is it doesn't, nobody's compelled to be a member of the union. So we do have members who are not active members who don't pay their dues. So I suspect that those people were in the, the classrooms, but those people are scabs. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, so, so really what happened is the power dynamic shifted when the judge refused to grant the TRO. We knew that we could continue to strike for a week. The reason I, I think we called it off, um, we, you know, basically we had TA'd a, a pile of papers um, is before we were able to accept that we did present everything to our bargaining council, which is empower, which is a democratically elected organization, a subset of the faculty members who were able to say, okay, yes, let's call off the strike and present this to our larger membership. And we didn't have the whole contract ready for them, but we had the, we had sort of what I would argue was enough for people to understand the, the sort of nuts and bolts, what we were getting, what we were giving up um, uh, based on what the bargaining council had asked us to do. So just to take a step back, part of our process is the bargaining council says, this is what you take, you negotiating team take to the table. And then the negotiating team works with that throughout the process and then brings back what we got essentially. So I don't think, I mean, I would argue and, 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 and I, I can see how, you know, another perspective might see this differently is that um, it would have been better to present the whole contract to people, but 
the amount of time that we had, it felt like the TA, the numbers we were being given by our administration were contingent on the strike ending. So we had to, I think, act quickly. Um, and then part of it too, and you know, at least I think there was a strong feeling that you know, faculty didn't want to be out of the classroom for too long because the students begin to, to who were you know, powerful allies in this process start to, to think differently about the whole thing too. So I think that there was some pressure there as well. Um, and we did have, at least from my perspective, and I, don't, I have not talked to every single member of, of our, our union, I think generally speaking, people were happy with, with the result. I, I, somebody told me that we should have held out for more money but realistically, I think it was going to be very difficult for us to get that. I think we have eight unions on campus. Um, you know, we're paying the same healthcare premiums as our other units. Um, our lectures union, we have our tenure track union and lectures unions are separate. Uh, our lecturers got a similar increase. So, I mean, part of that was just weighing like what was possible. Um, and something else, so this is a separate issue, but we had, the, the administration had asked for a mediator. So we had gone to mediation, which shifts the dynamics a little bit. So we were no longer really meeting with them in person after, you know, for the two weeks leading up to the strike, we had a state assigned mediator who was sort of our go-between. And they, I believe, had said that they, we were, they had asked for fact-finding and fact finding, at least my understanding of this process is if you if you if you're in an impasse with uh, your contract negotiations, it goes to something called fact finding in which a fact finder is assigned by the state. That process can take months and the, the fact finder would analyze all the stuff we brought to the table right where the administration comes and says we can't give you raises we don't have any money and we say but look at this you have plenty of money here's the evidence for that that then the fact finder would impose a, a, a deal on us. The, the problem with that is that fact finding would have likely gone into January. And if we had worked into January with no contract, any increases in our healthcare costs would have been passed on to the members, which would have been um, probably like really bad. You know, it's basically saying you're paying for your own healthcare now. So we didn't, we couldn't get that far. Um, so that's why one of the other reasons we felt, you know, some pressure to resolve this stuff quickly. So I think, I think it's a, the sort of summary answer is that it sort of ended when it strategically felt like we needed to to end it, and that we had gotten a, a significant raise for most of our members. And and the big thing was nobody was going to lose money um, in the in the deal either. Just as a quick follow up on that, and thanks for getting into the weeds there. Sure. <clears throat> um, was there any proactive organized movement to to vote no against the tentative agreement as it played out? I understand you were on, you were supporting it. So, you know, I'm sort of asking you if there was opposition, but there's always going to be folks who, you know, are upset. Um, I'm more just wondering if there was an organized opposition to it or uh, <clears throat> if it was. I was about of... to say no, but there was. <laughs> um, the, not from the not from our members. There was a there was a group, um, and I don't remember the name of the group. It was a group of social socialists. You know, the, they. Um, I had talked to the some of the reporters for a newspaper, and and one of they they had run an op ed in the newspaper that 
that didn't really have a lot of the the facts straight that we're telling, you know, that we're encouraging people not to sign. And I think it was, I think that their, their motivation for that, I think was, you know, you know, it was like, it wasn't a bad thing. It just was clearly somebody who was on the outside of the, the negotiations looking in and, and essentially, I think, wanting us to have, to continue the strike um, and, and not understanding, too, that the fact-finding process, if we went into that, essentially would impose a bad, a bad deal on us eventually anyway. So I think that they tried to, um, you know, try to, to at least educate some of our members on that, that sort of perspective of, like, you should hold out, you should keep striking. Um, uh, uh, a little bit longer. And part of that too, is I think, I don't, and I actually never, I, I think one of the people was maybe a former student, but they weren't in higher ed to, to understand. I mean, like a 4% raise to, to a lot of people doesn't seem like much, you know? Um, so I, I think that there was, but our members, I think were pretty happy. Um, maybe I, I was about to say weirdly, but I, I, it's not really that weird. We've never, faculty have never had to pay for parking on campus. And um, one of the things we lost, one of the paddles we lost is that we will now pay for parking. That people felt really um, upset about like that. Like an indignity, you know, it feels like a little. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And part of it too is that our, our university sold its parking to a private equity firm. So it wasn't even oh, that we were it, that we were paying the university for parking. But what we did, and this is our lawyer's brilliant idea. He's like, what if we agree to pay for parking, but we make it so that all of our parking money goes into a fund for low-income students to pay for their parking and we got half of that so half of that money and i was like that's amazing because they can't say how can they say no to that they did actually say no to it but um eventually we we got there that seemed to be i mean obviously healthcare is a huge issue and and people are not happy about the increases in our premiums but one of the things so i don't know how much you want to talk about healthcare, but <laughs> i'll say that we had very 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 good healthcare. And it, it's also one of the reasons, you know, for years we are, are, we've probably been trading healthcare for compensation essentially. And we shifted that a little bit. And part of that was that the administration is no longer to pay for this very, very good health insurance. But as part of that process, um, they did offer us an HMO uh, for free. So no cost HMO which is not administered by, you know, it's basically like, it's so much cheaper for them than, than for us to be on the expensive PPO. So in some ways, it, you know, not everybody liked that, but, um, you know, I, I think, it, you know, at least from some of our members' perspectives, that was an okay, that was an okay trade to make. But, you know, one of the things that we'd like to do, and I, I don't know if it will be possible, but, you know, with healthcare, we have eight different unions. I think it's eight different, maybe seven. We have a lot of unions on campus, the clerical workers, groundskeepers. Everybody negotiates their contracts at different times. The administration has never set, gotten us all into a room together and said, let's talk about healthcare. So they basically deal with everybody on these one-off bases, right? And, and I think to, to really affect, effectively change our healthcare, we need to do that. We need to have everybody in the room and look at, bring in other vendors besides Blue Cross Blue Shield. Look at, we have something called a, there's a Michigan healthcare pool. I think our organization's too big, but for smaller schools have banded together 
uh, to try and get better rates, stuff like that, that like we can't do unless all the unions are together and doing it. So that's one of the, the hopefully one of the projects we're going to at least educate ourselves on um, to see what some of our options are. I know um, I have some, some colleagues at Henry Ford Community College who are going through some of this stuff too and have found that there are ways to address healthcare that our administration has never really looked at. And, you know, from their perspective, like if you're a provost who makes $250,000 a year, like it affects them differently than, you know, an assistant professor making, you know, $65,000 a year or whatever. Like it's not, it's not the same or a lecturer making $40,000 a year um, or a clerical worker, you know, it, it's different. Right. So I, I'm not saying that their motivations aren't good. I don't, I don't know what their motivations are. All they know is that they have to cut healthcare for them to their premium increase just does not affect them the same way. Um, so I think it's something that, that collectively we need to, to take a look at and, and hopefully figure out for the next time. Um, uh, it, it's some, something that could work for all of us. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess just to kind of wrap up here, what, what would you say are some of the big picture lessons sort of looking back, you know, that organizers in higher ed could take away from your experience? And, and also related to that, would you say there's, I don't know, a different climate or culture among faculty having gone through the strike together? Did you feel like, you know, there's these kind of non-contract gains sometimes from taking collective action that you get? And I'm kind of curious if, if that happened on your campus. Oh yeah, uh, yes. Um, I mean, it was it was really empowering to be on the picket line and uh, just meeting people I'd never met before. I mean, lots of faculty and other departments I'd never met before. Simply as the the social aspect of of it was great, but and in fact, some people have suggested that maybe every year we have a memorial strike just to remind people. But I think that. Uh, it activated a lot of people. I mean, it activated me and I was part of the process. Like, look, these are part of what we can do. I mean, following like labor, Twitter, it's just the news of what's happening nationally. Um, I think that there's, I mean, while we were on strike, our local Starbucks was on strike and it was full of our students, you know, like that's empowering. And, and obviously, you know, our issues are different than rail workers and different than, different than Starbucks um, workers. But, but the, I think what happened is, it, or what's happening right now nationally is that there is um, uh, uh, a desire to show the power of labor and to recapture what I think some of the things we had in the past, you know, and, and I can't tell you, I mean, I'm sure it's so frustrating. I listened to an interview with Joe Biden on, um, he was on Smartless. Um, not to plug another podcast. <laughs> he said, I'm a pro-union president. He said that, right? And then two weeks later, to shove this deal down the, you know, try to, down the throats of the railroad workers is a slap in the face, right? And you know what, what? I think the railroad workers are going to strike, right? Like, well, the thing he was trying to avert, I think that's really... Um, powerful. And I think that we saw that too. And I mean, you both are experiencing this too, is the degradation of higher education. You know, it starts here. Um, you know, it's not just a slogan, this are working conditions or students learning conditions. But, you know, I, I think that, that at least hopefully everywhere, 
but you know in our little community people really saw the the power that that we had and that we can be an activist union you know it's not just the faculty senate and the the union fighting fighting that fight so i, I think that that's that's a huge thing for all of us um, I think we learned a ton. I mean, one of the things was when we realized that we would stay late into the night in our, our negotiating room at the expense of our families waiting for counter offers that never came. You know, we put so much time into waiting for the administration to make a move. I think one of the things, I don't know how to do it, but, you know, the temperature is so hot between higher ed management and higher ed labor um, that it, it seems impossible to get anything done outside of that um, scenario, right? And I think that that's bad. I think that that's, uh, I don't know how to fix it essentially, except to try and take that temperature down a little bit. But, you know, we should be able to go to academic human resources or, or, or the provost and say, hey, we want to do this and have a conversation about it without it seeming like the faculty are begging for a second bowl of porridge. You know, it doesn't, it just doesn't, doesn't compute. So I don't know that, you know, and part of it is they, they brought in a lawyer, the lawyer they use is a known, like, you know, anti-union labor lawyer, right? And it's like, how did that guy get to there? I mean, he got there by being vicious. Um, I believe he was Western Michigan University's uh, labor attorney for their last negotiation. I think they actually got rid of him because he was the, the uh, you know, he was so toxic. Um, you know, but that's his job. He's good at what he does. But anyway, um, you know, so I think, I think part of it is trying to figure out, you know, how to get to the table in a less contentious way so that we can actually get something done without, without, um, you know, without this kind of brinksmanship that, that we ended up. But, you know, honestly, it, it was also, it was, it was power, you know, it was empowering and what we had to do. So, I mean, that's at the end of the day, what, what, you know, the outcome I think was, was good. You know, it can always be better, <laughs> you know. Um, there's some stuff in the contract still, but that's why we do this every few years, you know. Matt, I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, really enjoyed this conversation. There was lots to take from it. I think our listeners will enjoy it. Is there any way that our listeners can find more of your work? Perhaps you have a website or anything that you'd like to plug. <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter for now, I guess. It, it's at Matt Kirkpatrick and then www.mattkirkpatrick.com. That's all my creative stuff. But um, now that I, you know, I've taken a leadership uh, position or been, been elected into a leadership position or union, I hope to, to be, you know, uh, broadcasting more of the work we're doing here in, in Southeast Michigan too. And actually all of Michigan. I feel, feel like we're, it's a good labor state. Michigan's on the rise. As, as we're yeah, saying. hopefully. Yeah. 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 We easily make a wall between us and Ohio and, uh, you know, it could be the, the, the Washington state of the Midwest or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Yeah. Thank you. You guys are great. Our theme music is by Nigel Weiss. Our artwork is by Arthur Kay. You can find more of their artwork at rotradio.tumblr.com. We would love it if you subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. And rate and review us on all the major platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye.